Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Nozomi Naoi about her book, Yumeji Modern, Designing the Everyday in 20th Century Japan. This is the first book-length English-language study of one of Japan's most iconic 20th century artists, Takehisa Yumeji. And while Yumeji is most famous for his portraits of beautiful women and his stylish graphic design, which remain popular and even ubiquitous in today's Japan, his output was not only prolific, but also diverse. Yumeji began as an illustrator for socialist magazines around the turn of the century, and he was a key figure in the revival and reinvention of woodblock prints as a modern medium. He also produced astute and evocative portrayals of the 1923 Great Kanto earthquake, which devastated the Tokyo area. But Yumeji was also a mentor to modern uh, young artists and writers, and as Naoi shows, he created uh, not just a recognizable style and brand of his own, but also an alternative space of artistic production in the early 20th century. The book situates Yumeji's career within the evolving social, artistic, and technological context of his time, drawing our attention to his involvement with the new reprographic technologies and commercial design of the early 20th century. Additionally, by the inclusion of a substantial body of primary sources, including his 21-part earthquake reportage uh, in both the original Japanese and also in English translation, uh, Naoi's book is both an outstanding and accessible art history book, book, but also a resource for future research and researchers. All right. So, Dr. Nawi, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, and as is sort of traditional here on uh, the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, I wanted to ask you first how you became interested in this project that became your book, Yumeji Modern. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, it's wonderful to have the chance to talk about my book. So why Yumeji? Um, as you can imagine, it takes years and years for a book to come out, including all the research years. And during that time, um, there have been many things that impacted my work. Um, I would say my interest in the printed material and reproducible media started even before my PhD, uh, when I had the great opportunity to be at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. I started there um, as an unpaid intern, like everyone else in the museum field. And then afterwards, I was there uh, for a year as a curatorial assistant. Um, the MFA actually has the largest collection of Japanese woodblock prints outside of Japan. And I was there as part of their cataloging project. Um, it was there, I think, that I really became interested uh, in not just the beauty, but also the power of the printed medium, uh, the kind of circulation, communal viewing experience that the printed uh, medium allows, um, I realized was uh, really powerful. And so I wanted to look at artworks and how it exists in a kind of larger social sphere. Uh, So that was the beginning of uh, 
my interest there. When I eventually started my PhD program at Harvard, um, I was incredibly lucky to have uh, two mentors who were leading professors in Japanese art history. And one of them, um, with one of them, I was looking at gender and the female image in Japanese art. And that's when I first stumbled onto Yumeji and his very famous images of beautiful women. Um, it was later with my other mentor um, and in his approach with medium and materiality that I revisited Yumeji again. Uh, and those two, I think, really cemented uh, Yumeji as a topic for my long-term research. Uh, just to get us started with thinking about Yumeji, I think um, just to give you an idea of the kind of mass media output that he's done, uh, so uh, including illustrations, cover designs, poetry, essays, and even designs for free gift inserts, for example, uh, he contributed to more than uh, 2,200 volumes of magazines, journals, and newspapers during his entire career. So this really kind of melded uh, both of my interests together as a topic. Oh, that's really fascinating. Um, and it's it's something, that, that sort of personal history is something I did, I of course knew nothing about reading the book, um, but I have to say, and I hope, I hope this, you know, you'll take this as the compliment it's meant to be, um, that I think your sort of curatorial experience shines through in the book in the sense that it it's kind of it's of course very scholarly but it's also very public facing right there's this sense in which it's uh it's a very open book that i think a lot you know a sort of wider audience can uh appreciate which is something i know that you know the sort of public history and museums and you know curatorial sort of uh, professions are very interested in. So I definitely sort of felt that. And I actually wondered, and, and you know, forgive me for playing amateur psychologist here. We're doing the amateur diagnosis hour. I didn't know whether, I don't know if you knew that's what you were signing up for, but um, I kind of wondered whether that's the sensibility that you you sort of share with Yumiji, right? You talk about in the book, the fact that he's this very sort of public artist, right? He's, you know, he's a master at what he does. And at the same time, he's also, you know, this very popular artist, right, in a sense, and he manages to be both at the same time. And I think that's actually one of the things that I liked about the book. And I hope that we can uh, talk about it as we get into it, uh, which I'd like to jump. So I'd like to jump right into it and do that now. Um, so let's first talk about the introduction, um, because uh, there's a couple things in there that I think would really be helpful for the audience to understand before we jump into the chapters. Um, so early on, you write that uh, Yumeji's images evoke the era of the Taisho modern, yet his images also accord with our own contemporary aesthetic. Um, and, you know, he's also he's not just an artist, but a, a social phenomenon. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably still true here in Japan. Um, so I went into the book not realizing how much he was multifaceted and complex, and as you say, how he's you know so productive and his art was so you know, sort of wide ranging. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about Yumiji, the, the the person and the artist, and what is it that in your mind makes him this sort of transcendental figure, this figure who transcends this you know century or so gap from when he was most active uh, in the Taisho period to the present? Yeah, that's something I've asked myself many times as I was writing the book, you know, who is Imeji and how do I deal with him? And I'm glad you found the book accessible. And it is true that those are aspects that um, are really at the core of what Yumiji is as an artist and what his artworks are doing. 
Um, and so I'm, I'm really glad that my book itself also emanates um, a part of that as well. Uh, but as you say, because he is so much in the popular sphere uh, and in Japan, everyone knows Yumeji. He is uh, kind of a staple name that people know. And so that made it um, in a way both exciting, but also very challenging as an academic to deal with him. Uh, the question I also often asked myself was, you know, how do I deal with Yumiji as an artist? How do I deal with him as a person? Um, and then, of course, how do I deal with his work? Uh, so those are some of the things that I was constantly thinking about when I was writing my book. Uh, just to, I'm sure you being in Japan, um, you've been uh, kind of noticing this as well, but just to give the audience a, a sense of how prevalent uh, he is still today, uh, you could walk into an ordinary stationery shop, for example, throughout Japan, uh, and they would usually sell stationary items uh, like notebooks uh, and envelopes with images or design elements of uh, by Yumiji on them. Uh, his uh, cute uh, black cat or botanical motifs are very still very popular. Uh, people might recognize the strawberry motifs that are also the cover of my book uh, in uh, these kinds of merchandise as well. Um, for uh, and also, uh, you know, a Uniqlo, for example, um, launched in 2007, uh, its summer season of Yukata, uh, with images uh, by Yumeji on them. So, uh, you know, um, a common Japanese person would immediately recognize his images. And this is, in fact, uh, I think, very interestingly, uh, along the lines with what Yumeji was trying to do uh, during his lifetime as well. Um, I call him uh, the kind of Yumeji brand, in a way, um, in the book, uh, because he was so good at kind of self-fashioning and branding his images and the image of him uh, as a certain kind of artist. Uh, and he also, and this will come up later again, but he also uh, created his own Minatoya shop in 1914, where he sold objects that he designed, his artworks, uh, clothing, stationery, and all of these objects. So he was very aware of this kind of spheres of both artistic production and commercial production that uh, he wanted to kind of brand himself within. Um, also, uh, just thinking about the number of museums that are out there in Japan, uh, there are six museums and one gallery within Japan that are solely dedicated just to his work, uh, which is quite an astonishing number, uh, not just compared to artists of his own generation, but um, even earlier as well. Uh, so this all was both exciting and challenging, uh, as you can imagine. I think even uh, many of the scholars today and the way that exhibitions are curated about his work almost fall into Yumeji's own spell of the kind of image that he wanted to create for himself. Uh, and this is very prevalent when we think about, uh, for example, his iconic images of beautiful women, uh, which are known as, uh, even known as the Yumeji style beauties or Yumeji shiki bishin. 
And so that kind of dainty female figure with an almost a kind of melancholic facial expression uh, was a kind of perception that surrounded him uh, even during his lifetime. And uh, it uh, kind of creeps into our uh, kind of contemporary perception of him as well. Uh, he also uh, used his own uh, kind of personal, uh, you know, scandalous romantic affairs with many, many women, actually, um, as a kind of uh, way to bolster that image as well. And so he, uh, I think, really created around himself this image of the kind of very romantic and yet a little bit melancholic uh, and a kind of free self-taught artist that was not tied down to a certain kind of artistic um, school master or style. Um, and uh, I introduce one photograph in uh, the introduction chapter that really uh, gives you a sense of this self-fashioning. There's one photograph of him, uh, a posed photograph from 1910, uh, where we see Yumeji sitting on a windowsill, looking intensely introspective. He's dressed in a full suit. He's looking downward and he's holding an Italian mandolin, which is a very exotic, foreign, newly introduced item in Japan during that time. And so you can really see him trying uh, to convey uh, this, the figure of the kind of modern, cultured, bohemian artist uh, for himself. And I think we still fall for that image uh, when we first encounter his works. Now, as a scholar dealing with him, um, I also, though, however, noticed uh, that it's not just this that's part of his production. Uh, and so there's a really huge range, not just in the medium that he worked with, but also in subject matter. So uh, what my book deals with um, is the kind of that big range uh, that has illustrations and socialist bulletins uh, with anti-war and leftist images, right? Um, and then the kind of wrenching portrayals of the devastation uh, after the Tokyo, uh, the Great Kanto earthquake in 1923. So I was really trying to uh, think about how all of these different elements actually are not just... Uh, Kind of disparate elements, but are uh, that they have a kind of core fundamental element that tells us about the artist and the artworks and how they're engaged with uh, the larger Taisho sphere. Um, and the seemingly both frivolous, mundane, and the kind of serious, profound, and political elements, um, I through all of the chapters, I kind of uh, see this as uh, a kind of way that culminates to how he's dealing with uh, the mediascape and mass media during this time, the uh, kind of relationship between artist and audience through that, um, and also the kind of larger scope of what is actually happening uh, during his time, uh, which includes wars like the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, so those are the kinds of things that um, I see uh, as uh, a way uh, to uh, a moment um, in that early 20th century uh, and a lens in which we see that. 
um, bearing in mind that in the context, we have the rise in new types of reprographic technology and also the kind of emerging concept of the fine arts and concepts of what a design or designer is and all of those things taking shape uh, in the background. Yeah, so that's... So one of the things that fascinates me, and I think was probably a source of your interest in Umage as well, if I'm reading this correctly, is despite that you know tremendous uh, volume and uh, diversity of production, um, as you put it in the book, right? Umage is quote canonical yet conspicuously absent from the official art historical discourse of modern Japanese art. Um, which that that was really striking to me, you know, as somebody who's not an art historian, I, I would have just assumed that he would be, you know, part of any introductory textbook or, you know, whatever. Um, so why is it that he's kind of left out of the canon, that he's hasn't been the, the subject of, um, you know, vigorous, rigorous academic analysis? Um, does it have, you know, can you sort of, I think we will probably go into this a little bit in the chapters, but can you preview for our audience um, what it is about Yumeji that sort of kept him out of the canon? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Uh, and it's um, looking at him and his uh, kind of production. I think uh, we start to see uh, this kind of artist that is uh, really close to the audience he is uh, not affiliated to the kind of newly established art academies of the time. Uh, and of course, uh, much of his work is in uh, mass media and the realm of reproducible arts. And at a time when um, these, uh, for example, Tokyo School of Fine Arts and the Bunten Salon system are being established, uh, which almost brings in... Um, uh, you know, imports in actually rigid uh, definitions um, of Western art uh, that really starts with prioritizing mediums uh, like painting and sculpture. Uh, and so suddenly um, in a culture where uh, right before during the Edo period when the printed material and ukiyo-e had been such a, a, a large part of uh, the visual production, uh, these kinds of reproducible arts printed materials become uh, almost uh, kind of the other, the marginalized. Uh, and so I think that is also part of it. Um, I'll speak a little bit more um, about this as well, but it's also uh, the fact that a lot of his audiences and his core fans were also young women, uh, which of course is another uh, kind of marginalized um, sections. So uh, the kind of popular sphere, his interest in commercialization, um, the printed material, and uh, his predominant female audience are, I think, um, a large factor into uh, why he isn't a part of these kinds of um, the canon or the lineage, uh, which of course is... Um, changing, as you'll see in the kind of different books in Japanese art history that are coming out recently. Uh, but uh, the also his uh, lack of an official uh, affiliation with uh, these art schools during the modern era uh, also makes him easier to kind of uh, be simply dismissed as just a popular artist uh, when uh, these new 
and rigid uh, definitions of what a fine art and fine artist is, uh, is starting to emerge in the early 20th century. Uh, but you'll see, and I'll mention this um, in other parts uh, explaining the book as well, that he, uh, even though he himself is not part of these kinds of main trajectories, that he um, he does have a lot of influence over how, uh, for example, the printed medium uh, starts to diverge in the modern to contemporary era. Uh, so I think um, this kind of reevaluation of looking at him as an important point in time uh, for these larger trajectory uh, is was part of uh, the aim for my book. Yeah, and that's actually a really nice uh, segue into the first chapter, uh, which is the modern beauty and the Yumeji style, because uh, you you do uh, take up this question of you know his uh, audience being primarily uh, uh, sort of young younger women, um, and also these questions about um, you know, reprographics and the sort of modernization of the materiality and reproduction of art, um, and you pull that all together under, uh, in, at least in this chapter, uh, the sort of theme of the construction of what you call the Yumeji style and to some extent the Yumeji brand. Um, so I'd love it if you could tell us uh, exactly how, how, to, how we should think about the, the Yumeji style and the Yumeji brand. Um, and what that encompasses. And also um, in the book, you you uh, relate this to the sort of dialectic of production and consumption um, and following Apajirai, the, the social life of the object and the social life, I guess, of the brand as well. So if you could tell us a little bit about that, that'd be great too. What's interesting about the Yumeji style is that it has both elements within the actual works that he's produced uh, but then it also goes beyond to talk about um, actual women out in the streets during the Taisho era. And so that was a very fascinating, fascinating point. And I wanted to start uh, my book, the, the first chapter, with talking about the making of the Yumeji style because I thought it was an important place to start to understand how uh, he infiltrated almost his art uh, became part of the kind of day-to-day lives of, of normal people and normal women. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, his kind of the Yumeji brand and his self-fashioning uh, led to opening of his Minatoya shop. Um, and so this there's this element of uh, the kind of merchandise, thinking about commercialization alongside artistic creation. Uh, there's also that female image, uh, you know, his iconic beauties uh, that I talked about that uh, was also shaped by the perception of the artist himself. Um, and so all of that uh, kind of culminates into making the Yumeji style uh, that becomes almost um, like a conceptual entity uh, that goes beyond just what we see is being depicted um, in his beauties, for example. Uh, and, um, it's, uh, it's even becomes a kind of social phenomenon. Uh, and uh, the scholar Takashi Ritsuko used this, uses uh, this phrase, uh, the shakai gensho, social phenomenon. Um, and uh, his beauties and his style become immediately a kind of recognizable type that people talk about. Um, be- before I, I 
I introduce some actual kind of accounts of what people talked about them. Um, I'll just point to one painting, uh, Kurofuneya, which means black ship shop. Um, it's from 1919, um, and it's one of the most iconic Bijinga images by Yumeji. Uh, it's, uh, I have it in, uh, I think, my introduction or the first chapter. Um, and uh, it really kind of shows us the kind of essence of what people immediately recognized as uh, the Yumeji style and the Yumeji beauty. Uh, with um, its single-figure composition, um, dainty pose, again, the melancholic facial expression, um, all of these uh, became that type that people uh, immediately knew was by Yumeji. And of course, this is um, within the background of emerging new female types during the early 20th century, uh, such as the atarashi onna or new woman um, and the modangaru or modern girl, uh, which became the object of discourse and visual representation. Um, and so I'm, and in my chapter, I say that they don't necessarily, his images of women aren't just reflections of these new types, but they become part of the larger conversation of what a modern Japanese girl are almost what a modern sensibility um, is like. And so his images then uh, provided almost a, a kind of entry point for his consumers uh, to project, and especially his female consumers, to project their own identities onto images of ordinary girls that were given central focus and attention within his work. Um, and so I relate this with the kind of feeling of uh, the community of girlhood um, and girls as avid consumers uh, that uh, the scholar Sarah Frederick also talks about. Uh, the part where it becomes even more fascinating is when uh, we have records and accounts of normal people commenting about just normal women out in the streets being the Yumeji style woman. Right. So this is not this is beyond what we see is depicted woman by Yumeji, but these are actually just normal women. Uh, there's lots of, um, and I, I think I I uh, have a few quotes in the book, uh, which I won't um, read here. But there's lots of accounts like, oh, someone called me a Yumeji style beauty on the street, or someone saying, oh, look, there goes a Yumeji style gal. And so we really see that. Um, this entity, this, this concept of uh, what a yumejishiki, a yumeji style, uh, really um, just had its own life uh, and was walking through the streets of uh, modern Japan. And so um, his beauties then, alongside actual women who were called uh, the yumeji style, um, was a kind of a really tangible image that other girls uh, could strive to become. Uh, and so it really uh, got also entangled with uh, purchasing then Yumishi goods from the Minatoya shop, which uh, also became another way to almost inhabit the space of the Yumishi style beauty and then almost in association become one. So he provides this world that is very much really about Yumeji and yet very accessible and almost you can step into it 
um, just by um, certain elements. Um, and so what we learned what um, the Yumiji style is, that it incorporates, of course, reference to very specific pictorial traits within Yumiji's paintings and prints, but also broader definitions of uh, what a female type could be during the modern era uh, into actual women uh, that are alive during that time that are all uh, either consumers of his work or products um, or somehow embody that sense um, of that kind of melancholic, romantic uh, female that we see in his images. Yeah, and it, I think that's really, uh, you've done a really nice job of bringing out something that I actually thought was maybe the, the sort of most surprising thing for me as a reader is I almost felt like there's a whole other book that could be written about Yumiji by by somebody other than an art historian, just from the perspective of like fan studies and thinking about the sort of the way that modern, you know, thinking of doing a media studies project and thinking about these sort of the culture of uh, Yumiji that grows up, you know, a full century and, in, and maybe a little bit more in some cases ago. Uh, and that struck me as, you know, one of the, the real um, interesting things that you're pointing out in the book. And I'm glad that came out early on for our audience. Um, so the thing is though, of course, as you point out, that's not, uh, the sort of common image of Yumeji and his, uh, you know, his, uh, beautiful, uh, women and motifs, uh, including, uh, the, the cover image, as you mentioned, uh, that's not the sum total of his, uh, artwork by any means. And I had no idea, uh, that he essentially started out, uh, working as a, as a socialist artist of sorts. Uh, and you talk about this in, um, chapter two, the socialist platform, Yumeji as illustrator. Um, so this is Yumeji's early career, uh, you know, sort of from starving art student, um, to an illustrator for the influential socialist organization, Heiminsha. So of course we need to know a little bit about Heiminsha itself, but could you also tell us, um, how Yumeji finds himself involved in the organization and in its periodical Chokugeng? Um, and, how his art is affected by this experience and also by the uh, increasing government crackdowns on socialism as, uh, you know, air quotes, dangerous thought after 1905. Um, and what is the, how does that sort of fit into this story of the Yumeji style and Yumeji brand um, that is, this, that is you know, the sort of larger trajectory of his career? Yes, uh, Yumeji's socialist illustrations are incredibly fascinating and when I first stumbled upon them, I think I had the same reaction where at first I couldn't believe this was done by the same artist um, with, uh, you know, all of that iconic beauty images. But uh, this is part of my, my larger point, actually, of my approach, um, is that um, although these elements like the socialist illustrations are often dealt with separately, like um, as a kind of his socialist era. Um, I actually wanted to see this in a more holistic way. And I think ultimately understanding all of these different segments uh, actually, I think, really leads us to the kind of fundamental visual and artistic stance uh, that Yumiji has. Um, so uh, as you said, he begins his artistic career actually as a um, uh, as an illustrator for these socialist publications. 
uh, one of uh, or one or, or two of the kind of main members of Hei Minsha happened to be uh, one of his classmates at uh, the Waseda Business School, uh, where he was only there for a little bit because he soon figured that he wanted to become an artist. Uh, but that was some of the kind of direct reasons why um, he began these illustrations. Um, my book really tries to examine uh, this relationship between these kinds of illustrations, um, both the socialist ideology, but also how uh, his work in mass media and the kind of relationship that exists between subject matter and audience in mass media helps him start his career uh, and build his fandom, of course, uh, and builds uh, that kind of uh, style for him. Um, illustrations produced for Hei Minsha uh, reveal his intense um, involvement with the movement. He We do know that he went to several meetings with uh, socialist peers and uh, uh, some kind of demonstrations as well, um, which is not something that's really known about uh, this artist. Uh, and uh, just to give you a brief um, introduction to Hei Minsha uh, as well and their publications uh, is that they were very much uh, anti-Russo-Japanese war uh, and uh, the government uh, policies regarding that. And so there's a lot of articles uh, that you will see in these bulletins alongside uh, Yumeji's images. Uh, of course, um, Yumeji also, but many other very uh, serious socialists uh, stop doing a lot of these activities in 1911 with uh, the Taiyaku or the high treason incident, uh, where a number of socialists were falsely accused, um, imprisoned, and also executed. Uh, so um, that also is a point where some uh, people have uh, kind of almost accused Yumeji for only dabbling into socialism when it was fun and as soon as there was trouble uh, that he moved on to something else. Uh, but in fact, uh, many socialists, right, many serious socialists uh, also had to stop because it really was a matter of life or death. Uh, and even in Yumeji's diaries, there are a lot of entries saying that the police had visited him multiple times. Um, and so it was really, uh, I think, fearing his own life where he had to uh, kind of look for a different outlet. Um, and I think uh, in many ways that was a good transition into a lot of the more popular images that he ended up doing uh, with mass media. But what really helped, uh, I think, his production uh, because of this start in socialist bulletins is not just the fact that he was able to uh, demonstrate his kind of political stance uh, which was anti-war himself as well, but also that it um, brought him uh, the kind of uh, support and emphasis on looking at the kind of day-to-day -day lives of the average person as an element, as a subject matter for his artistic creation. I'll, I'll uh, introduce one image um, from uh, this kind of socialist uh illustrations, which is one of my favorite, actually. Um, it's called Shori no Hiai, or The Sorrows of Victory. 
uh, and uh, was published in Chokugen uh, in, um, in around this time. Uh, this is a striking image that portrays two standing figures, uh, one a young woman crying into her kimono sleeve, and beside her we see a skeleton dressed in a man's kimono with a red cross on his left uh, sleeve. Uh, behind them we see a stream uh, that is perhaps an allusion to the Sanzunokawa or the River of Three Crossings, which is a mythological river that separates the world of the living from the realm of the dead. We see wavy lines in the sky and a small moon on the top right, which creates a kind of ominous mood and uh, call attention to the figures, heads, and upper bodies. Uh, this is in the larger context of the Russo-Japanese War. We see a portrayal of a woman who is shattered uh, by the loss of perhaps her lover in the war. Uh, we see here uh, the kind of start of him uh, with uh, this kind of focus on the anonymous girl uh, of her subjectivity and experiences, uh, which developed alongside, of course, his political stance against the war, uh, but really developed his interest for um, looking at the common people. Uh, and also, broadly speaking, circulating publications played a key role in how Yumeji's productions developed, where he became aware of a kind of impact that he had on a wider audience uh, and the kind of immediacy and closeness that he had uh, between his own production and um, the people that were viewing them. And so all of that uh, really builds uh, the foundation for how his artistic career evolves um, into something else. Yeah, so I thought that's it's a really interesting sort of contrast to what you're talking about in chapter three, uh, which is commercial design and media, right? And, and I think there's this sort of disconnect in a sense uh, between, you know, th sort of thinking about this very, um, you know, socialist interest in the individual. Uh, and then, you know, we, but at the same time, he's also, as you said, sort of uh, learning about the power of uh, reproducible art and the sort of uh, the power of popular art. Um, and so in this chapter, uh, reproducing the reproducible, you mentioned mass media, um, you argue that the intersection of official or academy art, avant-garde art, and reproducible art enabled Yumeji to nurture his art practice. But you also argue that simultaneously, uh, his involvement with mass media and success as a media entrepreneur placed him in a marginal space outside official fine arts. Um, and within this, women's magazines are a key medium. And I guess that's you know, something something of a jump from socialist magazines to women's magazines. Um, but he emerges as this popular cultural icon uh, that we've begun to talk about and an exemplar of the uh, modern reproducible, you know, sort of mediascape artist, uh, you know. Um, so one of your examples is a department store magazine for uh, Mitsukoshi, which is sort of the most prestigious of the modern department stores in Japan. Uh, I'd love it if you could start with that magazine and some of the uh, uh, things you talk about in the book to explain to our audience about his uh, commercial design um, and 
the sort of ways that that impacted his mostly female audience, and then the tensions um, that critics saw between his success in mass produced media and mass reproduced media and fine art. Yes, this is a great point. It's also what makes him fascinating, but also really difficult um, to deal with at certain times because there are all of these different things that are happening. I, I think first I do want to point out that uh, to our perhaps contemporary sensibility that all of these spheres that includes uh, fine arts, art academy, uh, advertising, commercial art, um, and popular visual culture and mass media are um, somewhat, of course, related but disparate. But uh, here, coming out of, um, well, of course, coming out of the Edo period where printed material was just so prolific, and then entering the early 20th century when these categories are just coming in and starting to take place, and yet you still have a lot of artists that are uh, dealing with all of these kind of different media and spaces that exist for artistic creation and circulation. Uh, and so I think it's a very interesting mesh uh, of a, an artistic world that um, Yumiji himself is in, and then what he creates in within his own world a trajectory also for some of these materials um, in the future. Uh, at the same time that he is, he really owes his popularity um, and uh, the visibility of his works to mass media. He's also at the same time trying to uh, constantly reevaluate its value within this artistic sphere that is now starting to have discussions uh, like the definition of bijutsu, fine arts, and things like that. Um, and so I think almost that he himself is contradicted with uh, these boundaries uh, that are both helpful for him, but uh, he also finds um, limiting. Um, and also that has to do with his audience as well, uh, when you said about uh, his female uh, audience and readership. And so we also see leading illustrators during this time like Kimura Sohaji, who also writes about trying to put illustration as a kind of viable art form uh, within these larger discussions of bijutsu. Uh, and, uh, and so one of the things that Yumeji actually does before uh, the kind of Mitsukoshi advertising and, and all of those things is uh, that he tries to then address the ephemeral and temporal nature of illustrations um, and to kind of elevate their status. Um, and so one of the things that he did was in 1909, he published his first anthology of illustrations, uh, which was called the Yumeji Gashu Harunomaki, uh, or um, Spring Volume. Um, and he compiled all of his illustrations that he had done for uh, previously for other uh, journals and uh, magazines and newspapers. And he compiled them into an art book uh, and into a kind of more permanent form, uh, which he hoped was then would elevate it to the status of a kind of artwork um, in these uh, emerging discussions of what art might be. 
So he's, we see him both grappling with um, that side of bringing his um, uh, kind of printed materials into a form that can be thought of as more of a kind of permanent artwork um, at the same time that he's really util utilizing the fact that printed medium, uh, that the printed medium circulates uh, and is always changing uh, and is a kind of fast and more immediate uh, form of work that uh, goes to his audiences. So there is both of that sides, um, even within the medium uh, that he's dealing with. Uh, now, of course, there's also that two sides that you mentioned about kind of his political leanings and socialist leanings, and then also uh, his young female audiences. Uh, now, at first glance, I know this seems like very two different worlds, but if we think a little bit to uh, back to our discussion about uh, what about uh, the kind of socialist bulletin um, illustrations that we really see um, him developing uh, is really a focus on uh, just normal people as his subjects. Uh, and in some cases, um, and in my book, I, I call this the, the giving voice to the voiceless. But in some cases, these uh, kinds of uh, normal people or females that usually aren't given prominent space in artistic uh, production or elsewhere in society. And so his uh, kind of view into these particular types of people and um, uh, categories, uh, it really develops that um, and is part of the reason, I think, uh, where he really does start to cultivate a new demographic of female readership. Uh, now, this is also reflected by the larger literary context during that time as well, where we see a development of magazines and popular fiction during the Taisho period. Um, alongside also the rise and level of women's education in modern Japan. So all of these things help to coalesce what he's doing with his readership. We also see, and as you mentioned, Mitsukoshi, a rise in department stores and a different kind of shopping experience um, and how commercial spheres start to uh, then become part of artistic production spheres. And, uh, of course, Mitsukoshi is known for having their own um, studio where they had uh, artists, even very prestigious artists from the Tokyo School of Fine Arts, who made designs for their new kimono line, for example. So there is really that mixing of these spheres that happened during this time. And we really see Yumeji as being... Um, in the kind of middle of it all, uh, with all of these different platforms and establishments happening around him, um, that includes the kind of both the technological, um, reproducible media side, the kind of artistic and art school, art sphere side, um, and also these literary developments uh, that fosters Yumeji's career in mass media. Yeah, and. Uh you actually uh, once again have done a, done me a, a solid here by segueing into uh, chapter four, uh, where you, because uh, you just mentioned the Tokyo School of Fine Arts uh, and chapter four, uh, creating an alternative space for the print medium, the Umeji School and Tsukuhai artists. 
um, is about the space and community of not the Yumiji brand, but the Yumiji school, as you call it, um, which is a group of young aspiring artists and writers, etc., many of whom are students of uh, the sort of uber elite uh, Tokyo School of Fine Arts. Um, and they sought out Yumiji as an inspiration and as a mentor, as somebody who was part of a sort of um, alternative space of art uh, that was, you know, uh, growing up um, outside of the confines of the sort of, you know, uh, stodginess of or, or sort of conservative, you know, uh, narrow vision of the fine arts. Um, and I'd love it if you could tell us uh, what was the significance of the Yumeji school um, in the early 20th century art scene, and also specifically about the space of his shop, Minatoya, which you mentioned earlier, um, in sort of aiding our understanding of uh, the Yumeji school. Yes, Yumeji's uh, involvement, as we talked earlier, in mass media and these commercial spheres, and also having the Minatoya shop, um, all of these uh, you know, placed him outside these new uh, kind of official art academy circles. Um, and yet, so he he instead uh, creates these alternate spaces, um, which uh, was called the Yumeji Gakko, actually, by uh, the young artists themselves. Of course, it was a tongue-in-cheek because many of them were, um, as you say, students of the actual Tokyo School of Fine Arts, uh, but someone like Onchi Koshiro, for example, um, there's a quote of him saying that uh, I learned more from the uh, Yumeji Gakko, the Yumeji school, than I had learned at the Tokyo School of Fine Arts. Um, so, uh, you know, there is all of uh, those accounts there. Um, I pose this space as an alternate space rather than an oppositional one, uh, just because um, it's not trying to... Uh, in a way, be um, against um, all of what is happening with these larger establishments. But it's also trying to assert itself as uh, a kind of uh, separate and different space that can also exist alongside um, all of these developments. Um, As you see, I focus on a particular group of these young artists who congregated um, at this so-called Yumeji school, uh, which was just the second floor studio of his Minatoya shop. Um, and uh, these Tsukuhai artists who eventually uh, goes on uh, to form the art and literary group, also called Tsukuhai, um, which means reflections of the moon, uh, were Onchi Koshiro, Tanaka Kyokichi, and Fujimori Shizuo. Uh, and immediately we know uh, Right, that someone like Onchi Koshiro really becomes uh, the leading artist um, later on in the creative print movement and so forth. Uh, they start with and they seek out Yumeji uh, for, uh, first of all, for the just the eclectic um, uh, inspirations of art that Yumeji has. Um, and so they spent hours and hours just looking through different kind of art magazines that Yumeji had, uh, for example, the Yugen magazine from Germany, um, and uh, these different types of styles. Um, when you see works by the Tsukuhai artist, I think uh, that um, visually we might be um, immediately associated with uh, styles associated with the avant-garde in, uh, in the West, 
uh, like expressionism, cubism, and uh, futurism. Uh, but it was really Yumeji's engagement with the printed medium, uh, the woodcut, and mass media uh, that re- encouraged these artists to create uh, their own magazine uh, and to really take on the woodcut medium for their creative purposes. Uh, their style um, did rub off on Yumeji, and so we do see uh, some of those kind of very edgy elements in his work as well after he works um, very closely with these young artists. Uh, but I, um, the main point, I think, um, of bringing in this aspect into the book uh, was that I wanted to place Yumeji almost at, at the crux of the transition of the print medium uh, that we know comes from the kind of golden ukiyo-e age of the Edo period into uh, both this kind of popular visual culture field, commercial design that we talked about with Mitsukoshi, and then also to a kind of avant-garde uh, creative production. And so I really wanted uh, to place him uh, in that kind of transitional moment where we see uh, the printed medium take on two um, quite different, in a way, trajectories, uh, but one that um, Yumiji was engaged in, uh, in both sides. Um, in this chapter, I, I don't mean to suggest that Yumiji was the only one that formed alternate groups in print media, because there was a lot of other marginalized spaces and marginalized visual creation because of the establishment of the Art Academy, for example. But I really wanted to show how Yumiji as an artist was uh, very much embedded within these larger trajectories of art historical discourse uh, in modern Japan, even though he himself may not directly appear in uh, these lineages. Yeah, I thought that this idea of uh, creating an alternative rather than oppositional space, as you put it, was really interesting. I mean, the, the Japanese phrase "sumiwake," you know, sort of, um, sort of a to each their own kind of uh, being able to live in parallel uh, without, you know, necessarily having to wipe each other out was the thing that came to mind, and that seems to me to be a very uh, interesting thing uh, that you know the the Yumeji uh, school and brand and Yumeji himself uh, were doing at the time. Um, chapter five uh, continues in thinking about the trajectory of uh, Yumeji's life and artistic production. And in a sense, it kind of takes us almost full circle, in a sense, back to his um, original socialist leanings, right? In the final chapter, uh, you look at his reactions to the Great Kanto Earthquake of September 1st, 1923, um, which, for people who are not familiar, it devastates uh, the capital of Tokyo and its surroundings. Um, this is how I learned the English word fire NATO is teaching about the Great Kanto Earthquake. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was tr- truly a, a devastating event. Um, and what you focus on here is uh, a series of 21 reports, which Yumeji uh, produces for a Tokyo newspaper. So it's not a socialist magazine, but a Tokyo newspaper. Um, and you argue that they kind of show his um, complexity again as a person and an artist. And to me, it seemed that there was this sort of uh, return to some of his earlier uh, artistic production. Um, so can you tell us about uh, maybe one or two of these pieces? Uh, I'd love it if you could talk about number six, which was Jikei Dan Wasobi, um, and then maybe one other uh, that for you um, crystallize and exemplify um, the person and artist uh, and his response to 
uh, the Great Kanto Earthquake, which you're talking about in this chapter, The World Turned Upside Down. Yes, the sketches of the Tokyo disaster, uh, really, I, I really wanted to end my book with these series uh, because I thought it was important uh, for Yumeji and also it, it holds a kind of personal meaning for me as well, um, which I might mention later. Uh, but here I revisit again uh, Yumeji as an artist and also this kind of uh, contradictory figure, uh, right, of his uh, kind of subject matter and political stance. And I take the series as uh, a kind of culmination point where we see the kind, uh, the kind of compassion for the people and the sense of close observation of the day-to-day activities of ordinary women, men, and children, uh, but also his very political uh, anti-government stance. Um, and then alongside also the kind of closeness and immediacy that we feel uh, between the artwork and the audience. Um, and so I, I take this series as uh, that point uh, that I end with. Um, and again, uh, he does have a lot of images that focus on um, the female as well within the series. Um, and I also relate that back to how the cultivation of his Yumeji um, Shikibijin, uh, his beauty, is also stemming from these kinds of concerns as well. Um, and, and again, the kind of giving voice to the voiceless uh, that I talk about. Um, as a whole, the, you really sense uh, Yumeji's almost um, camaraderie with his fellow Tokyoites um, in the struggle and the survival after uh, this devasa- devastating uh, natural disaster. Uh, I'm glad you really like um, number six. It's, it's a quite a fascinating one. Uh, it's called Jikedan Asobi, or Playing Vigilante. Um, and the illustration depicts six children playing a game. Some of them are holding long sticks, and they point um, at the boy in the center. Uh, and in the text, we know uh, that he's asked whether he can play the enemy or not, because he just doesn't quite look Japanese. Um, in the larger context uh, with playing vigilante, this is a reference uh, to these groups that were originally formed in the aftermath of the earthquake to protect um, everyone. Uh, but in this period of utter chaos, um, however, these groups were known to abuse their power. Uh, and so Yumeji uh, underscores this point indirectly uh, through his portrayal of children play acting uh, these vigilantes. It's also a veiled reference to, um, and as you can tell when they say, you know, you don't quite look Japanese to this one boy in the center. uh, It's a reference to the indiscriminate violence against Korean nationals and other foreigners during this time as a result of uh, circulating false rumors uh, that these people were, uh, poisoning the well water, for example. Uh, they were completely false, and yet they circulated. Um, and so there was a lot of lynchings that took place. So he uses the metaphor, um, almost kind of innocent depiction of children, to comment on uh, the malicious adult behaviors that he is uh, witnessing and hearing about uh, after the earthquake. 
when we um, investigate a little bit more about these, uh, we also know that there was a media ban that immediately followed these mass killings of Korean nationals that was only lifted two months after in October 20, 1923. So we know that Yumeji publishes this installation and this, um, this image before uh, the media ban was lifted. And so it was a very uh, risky and audacious move for uh, Yumeji. And again, we start to then um, link back and see again the kind of bold anti-war and anti-government illustrations that he had done uh, almost 18 years earlier for his socialist publications uh, at the beginning of his artistic career. Uh, now, I'd like to introduce one more, which is of a different kind of nature, because you see both in the series. Um, and this one is called Chushu no Megetsu, or moon, moon Viewing. And um, instead of concentrating on the kind of disaster, uh, this one shows you a tranquil night scene with a mother and her two children that you see from behind, sitting in a field and looking up at the moon. It's uh, a poignant scene, and all the more so if you think about Yumeji's sensitivity and portrayal of his female images and, of course, his interest in the Yumeji style of beauty. And so there is a romanticized, natural setting uh, with a kind of beautiful moment with the figures that is being communicated, even in a series uh, that really dwells on the theme of destruction. Uh, the text recounts that Yumeji observed this mother uh, was pulling pampas grass in the fields of Aoyama, trying to preserve the tradition of moon viewing for her children, uh, even during such a traumatic time. Um, and so we see the kind of uh, really quiet moment, even within uh, the tragedy that Yumeji focuses on. Uh, it's a very quiet uh, and sensitive moment of uh, a very normal uh, kind of moment that you see. Uh, and we see the desire for people to create and preserve normalcy, um, even during this time, really touched Yumeji too, uh, and that he depicted this. Um, again, we also go back to the fact that um, something like this was a serialization. So there's 21 parts to the series. And um, that allows for that close connection between his artwork and um, the viewers. Uh, and so as he is uh, depicting and writing about his reactions and observations of what happens after the earthquake, the series also expands and builds upon itself as it's reacting to how different people are reacting to both his series and what is happening um, what is unfolding in Japan during that aftermath. And so it enables a kind of memoristic journey uh, that both his audience and Yumeji kind of experience together as the series comes to a final end with 21 installations. Um, and so this is really how I bring together uh, that uh, kind of political and almost forceful side of his political stance that we had seen in his socialist illustrations, uh, as well as uh, that uh, kind of engagement with the kind of day-to-day -day 
mundane moments that we see um, both in, in the socialist ones as well as uh, his kind of prolific production of Bijinga as well. Um, and just to say that if um, anyone wants to read more about this image, I have a blog post um, on the University of Washington Press website uh, just about um, the moon viewing image. Uh, so I hope um, that can be helpful as well. Yeah, uh, we will try and put a link to that in the uh, blurb for the podcast, but do check it out. Um, so you're, you have an epilogue which treats the last decade of Yumeji's career and his life. Um, he passes away in 1934. Uh, and it struck me that this was quite a sort of different um, phase in his career. He's, he moves out of his studio in, in Tokyo um, in 1924, um, he uh, does a sort of autobiographical novel. Uh, he even travels to the U.S. in the early 1930s to pursue his uh, some knowledge to fulfill a dream of creating a rural socialist art colony. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's he's kind of he's really I think he's I don't know if it's fair to read it this way, but it seems to me he's quite changed by the experience of 1923, as I think a lot of people were. Um, and you observe that as an artist, you know, his popularity is somewhat on the wane in these years, um, even though you know, his legacy is is still with us. Um, but in a sense, um, you know, you I think you're arguing here that the same reproduction and reprographic technologies that helped to establish him as an icon during his lifetime have helped to preserve him as a cultural icon for us. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about that, those sort of uh, the last years of his life um, and his legacy in that sense. The last years are also a very different phase as well. And uh, perhaps we would have seen a very different development if he hadn't died so early um, due to um, exhaustion and uh, uh, also illness because of all of that traveling. Uh, but um, as, as you mentioned, as many artists after the 1923 earthquake, uh, many people did move out of that Tokyo region into the Kansai area as well. And there was uh, a shift uh, in the kind of climate um, for uh, these kind of cultural productions as well. Uh, even before then, we sense. Uh, a different kind of climate with the mounting um, government oppression and militarism that's already starting to show, but it really becomes oppressive for Yumeji, I think, after uh, the earthquake. Uh, and so he really tries to take a different turn. He almost, um, in a sense, tries to uh, create a departure from his uh his iconic uh, Yumeji style image and to try to create a different uh, persona or style um, for himself. And so he uh, starts to think about uh, kind of an art colony and also um, perhaps I I think he's hopeful that he can make himself into a modern international artist um, with his dream to go, go abroad to the West. And, um, I, I do have articles about this specific period that's not part of the book. Uh, but what's really interesting, and I'll just introduce a little bit, uh, is that during his time in the U.S. Uh, and in Europe, uh, his uh, political stance that we have been seeing since his socialist uh, illustration days um, also 
uh, is um, demonstrated again, where he's talking about uh, the kind of struggles of uh, Japanese Americans that he sees, um, especially in LA during uh, the Olympics time. Uh, and then also when he is in Germany is right around the time when Hitler is on the rise. Uh, and so he, uh, there's a few writings by him that mention how he's, uh, he emphasizes with uh, the kind of Jewish community there and their oppression. So we do see a continuation of that kind of element as well. And he continues to produce illustrations and newspaper series, even when he is abroad. Uh, and so we see that sense. Um, and it's really because his life was cut um, so abruptly that um, perhaps his um, image, his self-fashioned image at uh, earlier in his career is, is still uh, kind of, there's that spell almost uh, that we still feel. Uh, but I, I wonder if he had uh, lived a longer life and he made a different turn whether we would still be experiencing his work the same way. Okay, so I think uh, our, our audience is probably expecting that since we've just talked about the epilogue that we are at the end and I'm going to ask you about your future research project, which I do intend to do, uh, or current research project. But uh, I can't let you go without geeking out a little bit with you about your appendices uh, because they're fantastic uh, and fascinating. Um, and I, I really... I, we don't generally talk about people's appendices on the podcast, I think, but you have this really fascinating collection of primary source texts um, and it's texts and images um, in both English and Japanese for us, including all 21 installations of the sketches of the Tokyo disaster by Yumiji from 1923. Um, so can you talk about how you uh, both selected those sources um, and how you ended up including them in the book? Uh, because I think, you know, they're, they, they, they seem to sort of be a counterpoint or counterbalance to the, the, the prints and artwork that feature in the main body of the book. Um, and they do a really nice job of sort of rounding things out. So I'd love it if you could talk about your uh, appendix sources. Thank you for taking note of my appendices. Uh, first of all, it was um, actually a really important part of the book and my research. Um, and also even though Yumeji is really well known in Japan, uh, there's not that many academic books on him and uh, there's really nothing on him in English. And so I wanted to make sure um, as an academic uh, that um, my book can provide uh, a kind of easily accessible source for future scholars to think about either him or artists around his time um, and I wanted it to really help uh, future academics. And so I really asked um, my editor at uh, UWP if I could include both the Japanese and uh, the English um, translations. And I think I was incredibly fortunate to have a very understanding editor and team that allowed me to have such a long appendix. Uh, some of them are... Um, uh, uh, primary materials from Yumeji himself. Others are letters by other artists around him. And so it really helps you to get that direct feeling of how people were discussing about these topics, his works, and what's happening in the artistic sphere 
at that moment in time in early modern, uh, early 20th century Japan. And so I really wanted to show that feeling. Uh, the Earthquake series also, um, now that the book is out, I receive a lot of comments, especially from Japanese curators um, of museums that have really large collections of Yumeji's works. Um, and they tell me that they found it very helpful and meaningful that I included all of that in my appendix uh, because it's a really different side that isn't dealt with a lot about Yumeji, but uh, it is still a very important side to him. Um, also, it, it holds a really personal meaning to me. I included this in, uh, in the appendix as well. But when I was in Japan doing research for this book, I was there um, at the time when the Tohoku earthquake struck in northeastern Japan on March 11, in 2011, um, with uh, the kind of massive tsunami. And it was a, a huge shock all throughout the country. Um, and it was at that time when my host professor at Waseda University suggested that I look into Yumeji's response um, to um, the earthquake, which was the greatest natural disaster for him. Uh, and so I think um, this timing really allowed me um, to uh, understand and have a kind of insight into Yumeji's heartful reactions that he has in his series. Um, and I worked on the analysis of the series uh, and the translations with the 2011 disaster in mind, um, and which even years later today affect a lot of people. Uh, and there are still a lot of people who are not able to return to their homes. Um, and so I really wanted to highlight that uh, as part of my book and the kind of different production that we might really want to remember Yumeji by. Um, uh, this is, I guess, uh, very in our current circumstance in 2020, and also going back to the moon viewing um, image that is in uh, the series, uh, that uh, I now feel that many of these reactions and critiques that we see in the series is, is ever more relevant today. Um, and in a way, I hope that... Um, everyone uh, is able to find, in a way, their moon-viewing moment uh, that helps us to remember the things that keep us human, keep us who we are, and allows us to persevere. Yeah, that's that's very um, hopeful. I find that, you know, generally as a historian, when when uh, my work or the you know the work of people I know becomes relevant, it's almost invariably negative. So it's nice to <laughs> sort of have a ha be able to put a, a positive, hopeful spin on that. Um, and I really appreciate that. Well, um, you've been extremely generous with your time, uh, and, but uh, I do want to uh, I do want to ask you that question uh, as promised, which is I'd love to know what you're up to these days uh, in terms of your research. I'm currently working on two projects. Well, I, I was working on two projects before all of these um, disruptions, but it was a natural progression from, I, I think, all of the interest that uh, came out of my research on Yumeji. Uh, the first one is, um, it builds on uh, what I did with the Mitsukoshi uh, materials on Yumeji, but it's about Japanese poster design. Um, and I examined the role of department stores, designers, and um, global modernism during the early 20th century um, and beyond. Um, and I focus on poster designs, especially by uh, this artist called Sugiura Hisui, who was 
the first in-house designer at the Mitsukoshi department store and the founding director of their advertising uh, department. So I really look at the kind of transformation of uh, the poster as a medium, um, as well as uh, a kind of uh, intersection between these spheres of the commercial and artistic um, as well. I'm currently uh, actually in discussion with a prominent private collection of Japanese posters in New York, um, and um, am in the process of thinking about an exhibition of the kind of modern to post-war Japanese posters in their collection. Uh, so I'm very excited about that. And um, in a few years, there might be an exhibition in New York uh, about that. Uh, my second project um, is uh, examining the visualization of children and childhood in art, uh, in literary magazines and children's magazines uh, during the early 20th century. Uh, and this also started with Yumeji because he was also involved in creating illustrations for children's books during this time. Uh, he was also one of the first person to translate some of the Mother Goose stories in Japan. So that's how I got into it. But I wanted to look at uh, the kind of role and value of children uh, alongside uh, the kind of formation of family identity, gender roles, and education and class in modern Japan. And I'm hoping that this project will take a more multidisciplinary approach beyond just the kind of visual and art history. So I have those two uh, projects happening. Um, if you'll allow me uh, one final uh, plug-in, uh, I know this has been a great interview, but because it's a podcast, if anyone uh, wants to hear more about some of these images um, while looking at uh, these images. I have two short videos called Highlights from Yumeji Modern on the website Envisioning East Asian Art History, uh, which also introduces uh, 19 other books, uh, new books in the field. So um, you can check that out as well. Thank you so much for listening to me for a long time. Um, and I hope everyone who reads my book enjoys it. Well, thank you as well. Uh, and we will look forward to, well, personally, I would, I'll, I'll, I'll hope I'll be able to get to the uh, uh, exhibition in New York, of course, but uh, also we'll look forward to uh, maybe having you back uh, on the podcast with a future book uh, about mm -hmm. uh, the representations of children, um, which is, which sounds absolutely fascinating to me. Um, and I want to thank you again for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. All right. Take care.